Good morning. Let's uh, go back to Galatians 3. You want to? No. Go anyway. Galatians chapter 3 and Jeremiah chapter 7. Boy, I'm really getting a lot of, like I'm in a drum up here. I don't know if it's volume or bass or what. Okay. It would be real easy for the casual reader to get bored with Galatians. With what might appear to be is just the repetition. It just seems like he says the same thing over and over and over again. Well, let me see if I can help you understand that this morning. If I were to come to you with the intent of challenging something that you have believed to be true all of your life, okay, you've adhered to this perspective. You've held on to this idea of, say, what church is. You've held on to this idea of what the Christian life is. And I come to you with something that challenges that. Our conversation might go something like this. I would come and I may make a statement or ask a question that addresses that issue. And your response might be, well, what about this? Referring to that issue. And then I would respond with a response to your question. And then you would respond with, well, what about this? And a conversation, which is rare today, would take place. Interaction would take place. I'm coming with something that I know and understand challenges everything you believe, and it's going to take a while to get your mind around it, and you're going to have to look at it from five or six different directions to really see, oh, now I see. And so that conversation would go something like this. I'd make a statement. You'd ask a question. I would respond to your question. You'd have another question. And then it would finally deteriorate into calling each other names. That's how we do today. Well, you're a racist, or you're this, or you're that. And then communication breaks down because we don't know how to communicate. A good attorney in court, especially in his closing argument, can't take questions from the jury. But he wants to anticipate what questions the jury might have and try to answer those questions in his closing argument by explaining the case, explaining perspectives of the case. He's going to think, now, man, the jury's going to wonder about this. So in my closing argument, I want to object that. I want to address that. And he would, if he was good, he would try to address any objections that the jury had to the point of view that he was trying to communicate. Now, if I'm writing a letter... Wisdom would require that I try to anticipate what questions you might ask in response to my letter and have an answer for those questions. We're not here in person. We're not face-to-face. 
And so I'm trying to anticipate what questions might you have as I'm trying to address this issue. And then I would address those in my letter. That's what Paul did in, in Galatians. He's writing about the issue that's been presented to them. All of their life, they have believed that it's faith, that it's salvation through works. It's salvation through keeping the law. It's righteousness through obeying the commandments. And in this particular case, he's dealing with the issue of, yes, there's Jesus, but then there's also circumcision and keeping the law, and those two have to go together in order for salvation to take place. And they have believed that all of their life. And Paul comes with a presentation. He comes with a perspective that challenges everything they believed. And so he's anticipating what would their question be, and then he responds. And as I write this, I'm sure you're going to ask this question, and so I'm going to respond. And I know you're wondering about this, and so I respond. And so that's why Paul, that's why it seems repetitive, because he's coming at it from all of the different angles that he anticipates his readers will have. And then he gets to Galatians 3, and he addresses the seventh expression. There were eight of why the law wasn't God's means for us to become righteous. And here he talks about it in Romans in Galatians chapter 3, verse 15. Brethren, I speak in terms of human relations. Even though it is only a man's covenant, yet when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say it into seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one and to your seed, that is Christ. What I am saying is this. The law, which came 430 years later, later than what? Later than the promise to Abraham. He made a covenant with Abraham. He made a promise to Abraham. 430 years later, Moses goes up to a mountain and gets the commandments the law that we know it. So the, what I'm saying is this, which came 430 years later, does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God. He says what they got later did not nullify what they got earlier. What's earlier still stands, okay? And if they think what they get later nullifies what they got earlier, They don't understand what happened when they got it later, all right? Now he says, For if the inheritance is a law, it is no longer based on a promise. But God has promised it to Abraham by means of promise. And then he surmises, well, the Galatians are going to say, well, what's the purpose of the law then? Okay? I mean, he's reading their mind. He's reading, he's, because he was there at one point. These are probably questions he asked Jesus in the desert when Jesus revealed himself, well, what about this then? And Jesus said, here it is. And well, what about this? And well, here it is. And so as he's writing these letters, he's knowing the Galatians are responding, and they're saying, well, why then the law? Verse 19, he says, it was added because of transgressions. Why did we get the law? He says, it was added because of transgressions. And we're going to expound on that a little bit in a minute. 
It was always before the law, before Moses, before the commandments, before Abraham, it was always God's heart to be in a relationship with his people, with intimate fellowship and righteousness available through faith in him, believing him. Look in Jeremiah chapter 7, okay? And you'll see this. Jeremiah chapter 7, beginning in verse 21. And thus the Lord of hosts, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, add your burnt offerings to your sacrifice and eat flesh. Now, I don't know what that means, but that can't be good. He is not happy with their sacrifices. You just take them and eat them. I don't want them. I'm not pleased with them. You take, now where did the sacrifices come from? They came from God's own instructions of how to give a sacrifice. Isn't that interesting? Here they are giving sacrifices that God said he wanted, and now God's saying that, I don't want your sacrifice. I don't want your offering. Well, what happened? Add your burnt offerings to your sacrifices and eat flesh. For I did not speak to your fathers or command them in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt concerning burnt offerings and sacrifices. He said, when I first brought the children of Israel out of Egypt, the first thing I said to them was not, here's how you sacrifice, here's how, was not the law. The first thing I said to them was not the law. That wasn't my heart. That wasn't what I wanted. But he says here, but this is what I commanding them, saying, obey my voice. Relationship, intimacy, obey my voice, and I will be your God, and you will be my people. And you will walk in all the way which I command you, that it may be well with you. Yet they did not obey or incline their ear, but walked in their own counsels and in the stubbornness of their evil heart and went backwards and not forward. Now look in chapter 11 of Jeremiah as well. Jeremiah chapter 11, verse 1. The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord saying, Hear the words of this covenant and speak to the men of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and say to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Cursed is the man who does not heed the words of this covenant, which I commanded your forefathers in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt. He says, I am not interested that you're trying to keep the law. You're not listening to the command that I gave you, which was obey my voice. Walk in relationship with me. That's the first thing I talked to you about. That's the first command that I gave you was to obey me, which I commanded your forefathers in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt. This is before the law was given. Understand? He brought them out of Egypt. They roamed around, and God gave the commands to Moses on Mount Sinai. This was before they got the law. 
I brought them out of the land of Egypt from the iron first furnace, saying, listen to my voice and do according to all which I command you so that you shall be my people and I will be your God. What is that expressing? God saying, I wanted a relationship with you. I wanted to be your God, and I wanted you to be my people directly. No law standing between us. And all you had to do was obey my voice, but you didn't do that. You sought your own ways. And then in verse 6, And the Lord said to me, Proclaim all these words in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem, saying, Hear the words of the covenant and do them. For I solemnly warned your fathers in the day that I brought you up from the land of Egypt. Again, he reemphasizes, I spoke something to you the day that I brought you out, and it wasn't the law. I didn't give you the law then because I wanted a relationship with you. I wanted you to, to us to walk together in the cool of the evening like I had intended for Adam. And all you had to do was obey my voice. You would be able to hear my voice. You would be able to commune with me. You would be able to respond to me directly. But you didn't want to do that. I solemnly warned your fathers in the day that I brought you up from the land of Egypt, even to this day, warning persistently, saying, listen to my voice. And yet they did not obey or incline their ear but walked each one in the stubbornness of his own, of his evil heart. Therefore, I brought on them all the words of this covenant, which I commanded them to do, but they did not. I wanted you to be intimate. You didn't do that. Because of transgressions, the law came in. Israel wanted to reject him. They wanted a king. They didn't want him to be the king. They wanted to return to Egypt. They didn't want to follow the cloud and the fire. They didn't want to hear him directly. They wanted to do their own thing. Now, here's the thing that's interesting. When left to ourselves, we create our own self-righteousness to justify our behavior. When left to ourselves, we create our own self-righteousness to justify our behavior. God says, well, here is my assessment of your attempt at trying to gain righteousness through self-effort. And it's in Romans chapter 3. You want to set up your own righteousness? You want to keep your own commands? You want to do whatever you want to do? You want to take license with whatever you think is going to make you right with me? Let me tell you what I think about your self-effort. There's no one righteous, not even one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asp is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Your feet, Their feet are swift to shed blood. 
Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. God says, you want to know what I think of your self-effort? Here it is. I'm not impressed. There's nothing you can do. And he says, you want rules instead of relationship? Okay. Here are the rules. And we get the law. And we get all those commandments. And we get all those directives. And there is absolutely no way any human being on the earth could keep those. You want the rules? Here they are. This is what I expect of you if you plan on trying to attain righteousness through self-effort. Think about that. If you want to you try to keep rules in order to be right with me, okay, here's the rules. How's that working for you? Oh, by the way, you can't do it. No one is righteous. No one is even good. Oh, and by the way, and if you break one of them, you're guilty of them all. The law served as a constant reminder that we can't measure up within ourselves. It constantly shouted, you are inadequate to become right with me by your works, by your rituals, by your ceremonies, by your sacrifices, by your offerings, you are inadequate. Anything you do is inadequate because you are inadequate. The law kept us shut in to that inadequacy of what God required until faith was realized. Now, instead of realizing and accepting the reality that they were inadequate and surrendering to the mercy and grace of God, they did like us. They changed the rules. There's always a way around the law. There's always a way to work around the law and feel justified when, well, I didn't do that, but I didn't do this. See? So they changed the rules. They compromised. They justified their failures. Well, if they, you know, if this hadn't happened, and 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 you see them, and you see them as they go through the wilderness, they're blaming everything. Moses is up on the mountain receiving the command of God. They get impatient and they take all this gold that they got from Egypt and they get Aaron to build this golden calf and they put it in an oven and shapes it and they bring a calf that's shaped in gold. God calls them on it and they said, we just threw that gold in there and this calf came out of there. I don't know how that happened. All of these excuses, all of these compromises, all of this blame, we compare ourselves. Well, I may be bad, but I'm not like so-and-so. We ignore them, just ignore them and set up our own rules. We did one thing and demanded something else from others. The law served as a reminder of how incapable we were. Nothing within us could make us right with God. Now, 
I, I, I imagine some of us are getting a little uncomfortable with that because we're so comfortable with our culture. You mean to tell me God wanted man to see how unrighteous and inadequate he was? God wanted man to feel bad about himself? God wanted man to see that he was inadequate? And the answer is yes. Absolutely yes. God wanted man to see the enormity of the task and the inadequacy of the resources. He wanted to see, okay, you want to be righteous? You want to be right with me? This is what it takes. Now, let me show you what you got to accomplish that. Zip. And I want you to be aware of that. The law serves to keep you aware of that, make you aware of that. Only through such revelation would man quit trying to yield only to hit that revelation would man quit trying and yield to God's provision. But instead of throwing himself on the mercy of God and say, God, you're right, I got nothing, we try harder. Try to keep it more. Try to do better. Compromise, blame. Only through such revelation would humility come and surrender to God's provision for righteousness, which was Christ. You see, folks, one reason the good news isn't good news is because we've watered down the bad news. One of the reasons that the good news of all that Christ has done is not good news is because we've watered down the bad news. We make excuses. Well, it's just this, it's just that. You know, you got this. It's a sickness. It's a disease. It's just, and we, we say, it, it, well, if you just did this, try. Listen, the problem is the absence of Christ. Not so bad. You're not, not your fault. Not like others. And some people mistakenly believe, well, that's right for drug addicts and alcoholics and prostitutes and murderers and all, but not me. I'm a good little, except he said, there is none righteous, not one, none that does does good. Ephesians says, Romans says, we have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. Now he goes on in Galatians. But the law then, it was added because of transgressions, having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. Now, a mediator is not for the one party only, whereas God is only one. Is the law then contrary to the promise of God? May it never be. For if the law had been if the law had been given, which was able to impart life, then righteousness would have deed been based on law. Here's what he said. If law had been given in order that would make it possible for someone to be made right with God, then righteousness would have been come, would have been made based on the law, but it wasn't. But the Scripture has shut up 
everyone under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, he, he gives an analogy. We're going to look at this analogy. He says, but before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. And he gives a picture in Jewish culture. He gives a picture in Jewish culture of a young man growing up. And a Jewish father would take his son and he would entrust his son as a young child to a tutor. Now, we think a tutor is a teacher, but the word tutor here doesn't mean teacher. It literally means one responsible for the moral and physical well-being of an individual. A teacher was something else. This word is guardian. He and this guy, this, and it was a slave who was given this responsibility. Your responsibility is to guard my son. Make sure he doesn't do any more stupid than you can stop him. Make sure that he doesn't do this. Make sure that he, your job as a guardian is to protect him, to keep him in from all of this stuff. He didn't have a say. He's the, he's the, he's the father's son biological son, and he has no say in anything because he is under the training of a tutor, the protection of the tutor. Now, when he was 14, by the time he was 14, he would get a voice. He'd get to say something. He'd get to speak in the meetings of the men. But it wasn't until he was 21, 24, I believe, actually, until he became a bona fide citizen. That was when the father designated. The father designated the time for the son to be under the tutor. And he would stay under there under that protection until the father time had been designated. The son was kept under guardians and managers or slaves until the father determined the time to take place that he would take his place as the son. You know what that process is called? Adoption. Adoption. Not our understanding of adoption, but that process of becoming a man, being under a tutor until he was of age that the father had designated was called adoption. And he was adopted then as a son. He was a birth son, and he was an adopted son because he had been through the process under the law that kept him in and protected him during that period of time. I go on, he says, but after faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith, which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law was become our tutor to lead us to Christ. Now, that word shut up there, it means custody. It means to be a watcher in advance, to mount a guard as a sentinel, to hem in, to protect, to keep with military guard. And it says when he kept them, means he shut in on all sides. Now, the picture here is the law is the slave. 
Okay, can you see that in the analogy? The law is the slave. In in what he's trying to communicate to us, you too have been kept under a slave. That slave was the law. That purpose of the law was to hem you in to the awareness that you could not be what God wanted you to be except through faith, that you couldn't earn it, that you couldn't strive and make it that. The law kept you in there and made you conscious of that and made you aware of that. And he goes on. And he says, yeah, verse 25, age 25, you had property rights. Up until then, you didn't have any rights. If the analogy of the slave is the law, it's designated to keep us under control. Now watch here. But then he says, but before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to faith, which was later revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith is come, we are no longer under a tutor, but we are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. He says that designated time, the time when faith come, then we were no longer under the authority of, of the tutor. We became a full-fledged son. As a son, I am free from the bondage of the law. I am free from its condemnation. I am free from its judgment. I am free from its control. I am free from the slave father placed over me to control me until faith came that time designated by the Father. That's the analogy he gives her. There was a time that the law was applicable to you. It was when you were unrighteous. And the law was given to keep you preserved, basically, from destroying yourself. Some of us even deny that. I mean, we reject that. But whenever faith came and you became a son, the process of adoption was completed. That's why Scripture said we've been adopted as sons. We've been through the process of the law. But now then that we are sons, we are free from the influence of the law. It has no bearing in our life whatsoever because of what Christ did. There is a new influencer in town. I can see the thoughts thinking, okay, and we're going to get into this more next time. Okay, I ain't got the law. What is there then that's going to just keep us from going nuts? As a lost person, nothing. As a believer, there is a new influencer in town. He has come to take up residence in my heart. It is God himself by the Holy Spirit. That slave that exercised authority over my life is no longer needed. 
There is someone, something new inside of me that will tell me what to do and tell me what not to do. And not only that, it goes beyond what the law did. The law could tell me what to do and what not to do, but the law couldn't empower me to do it. Now we have one who lives inside of us, who directs us, tells us what to do, tells us what not to do, and then empowers us not to do it and empowers us to do it. Before we didn't have that. All we had to do was our our own effort and our own trying. See, one of the jobs of the Holy Spirit is to convince us how righteous we are. And we keep trying to talk him out of it. One of his job is to convince me how right with God I am, how complete before God I am. And we keep trying to say, no, 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 I got, I, I'm, not, I'm not doing this enough, and I'm not doing that enough, and I, I just don't feel like God's here, and I feel like God's not giving me favor, because, and we keep arguing with him. When his responsibility now is to instruct us how to walk in that reality free from sin, free from the law. The cornerstone of relationship is Christ. The cornerstone of religion is the law. Just as a son was kept under guardians and managers or slaves until the father determined the time to take place as his, to take his place as son, we too were kept under the tutor of the law. But when the law come, when Christ came, The tutor is no longer necessary, relevant, or applicable to the son. Why? Because he's reached the place in his life that all he wants is to please the father because of the work God did in his heart during that time. And now instead of being down here, he's partnered with the father to accomplish the will of the father. And to do what the father wants. Before, yeah, he was a son biologically, genetically, but positionally, he was not a son. He was a servant. He was under, he was a son, but he was under the authority of the slave. When the father designated that period of time and says, You're now a son. And we're going to do this thing together. We're going to approach this together. The awesome thing about it is. God comes to live inside of us, and the law is no longer relevant. We have transitioned in the analogy. We have transitioned into adulthood because of Christ. Christ is our Passover, our Shabbat, our Sabbath, our Jubilee, our tabernacle, our unleavened bread, our first fruits, our trumpets, our atonement, all of Christ is the reality of all of those symbols that we had. Now, one more thing. 
the law being active in my life is not only an issue of how I see myself, but it is an issue of how I see other people. Look what he says. For you are all, you are all. The Greek word for all is all. In Christ, you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free man. There's neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs, according to promise. A Jew, a good faithful Jew would wake up in the morning and in his prayers, he would thank God. I thank you, I'm not a slave. I thank you, I'm not a Gentile. I thank you, I'm not a woman. And Paul says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. We are all one in Christ. But if I'm living my life by the law, my rules, my commandments, my principles, not only will I judge myself by those, but you know what? I'm going to judge you by those. Instead of embracing people with the love and forgiveness of Christ that I have received, I will relate to others based on how they keep my rules, my law, my commandments, and my principles, all without knowing their heart. Well, I'd never do that. Really? You've never looked at somebody and because of what they had on their skin, judged their heart? You've never looked at anybody for the color of their skin and judged their heart? You've never looked at anybody for the clothes they have or the house they live in or the, and judge their heart. What we're basically saying is, by my standard, you're not measuring up. By my standard, I'm a Christian and you're not. And that's what these guys, these Jewish uh, followers were doing with Paul. Yeah, you're not legit because you're not keeping the law and being circumcised. You're just talking about Jesus. That's my standard, and you're not keeping it. I am holy, and you are not. I've never watched an R-rated movie. I've never let liquor touch my lips. I've never smoked a cigarette. I am right, and you're not. I'm like Jesus, and you're not. Boy, the most unlike Jesus people I know are the people that think they're like Jesus. God, spare me. I see how how easy it'd be for me to judge people who think they're like Jesus, but they're not like Jesus. See? Got our rules, got our law, got our commandments, got our principles that we live by. I love Jesus based on my standard, and you don't because you do this. Like the Pharisees, we hold people to a standard that we ourselves are not keeping, and we justify it. Indicative 
the law is still playing a part in my heart and in my life. Now think about this. God, a father takes his son and he puts him under the authority of a slave until he's old enough, until the father designates, and then he says, now you're, you have all the rights and freedoms of a son. And the son goes to the father and says, nah, I like it where I'm at. I like the slave running my life. I'm going to stick it over here. That's what we do when we go back to the law. When we let it influence our life, when we embrace it and measure ourselves by it. Instead of understanding how free God has made us, how complete God has made us because of the work on the cross. And the law has no more place in our life because he set us free from it. But he has placed someone inside of us that will lead us into all truth. That's what he said. I'll lead you into all reality. He said, he'll comfort you. He has said, he will empower you to do everything the Father wants you to do. If we're willing to go back to a relationship and develop intimacy with him, that we can hear his voice, that we can respond to his desire and walk in that that he does inside of us. Amen? All right. What phrase, what, three things. What word or phrase stood out? Number two, what effect does my trying to keep the law have on me personally? I can tell you what it does to me. It makes me mean. It makes me grumpy. Makes me irritable. When I don't feel like I'm measuring up and doing it, I am just not nice. And if you get in my way, I'm not going to be nice to you. What does trying to keep the law have on, on, my, on me personally? And what effect does me trying to keep the law have on how I see others? Okay? Three things. What word or phrase stands out? What effect does me trying to keep the law have on me personally? What effect does me trying to keep the law have on how I see others? All right, take a couple of minutes. Anybody? Now, if you're sitting here thinking, oh, I wish my friend was here to hear this. Used to have a woman in my church in California. You know, this was back whenever the pastor stood back by the door and greeted everybody when that out. Every time she'd go back to, boy, my husband needed to hear that. My husband needed, every time my husband needed to hear that. I thought, lady, you, you ain't heard it yet. Anybody? A word or phrase stood out. How does it affect you personally? How does it affect how you deal with others? All right, ask the Lord this week. Meditate on that.